You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our scripture for today comes from Acts 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 and then 34 through 43. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and also prayed to God. At about three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. Looking intently at him, he became afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he told him, Your prayers and your acts of charity have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also called Peter. His lodging was Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel had spoke to him, had gone, he called two of his household slaves and a devout soldier, who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop at about noon. Then he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. He saw heaven opened and an object coming down that resembled a large sheet being lowered to the earth by its four corners. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything common and unclean. Again a second time, the voice said, What God has made clean, you must not call common. This happened three times, and then the object was taken up into heaven. Then Peter began to speak. In truth, I understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteous is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the sons of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went from doing good and curing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses to everything he did in both the Judean countryside and in Jerusalem, yet they killed him by hanging him on the tree. God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, witnesses appointed beforehand by God, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. Good morning. It's great to be with you all. As Aaron said, uh, my name is Micah, and most Sundays I'm up here getting to lead worship, but Chad was out of town this week and, and asked me if I'd be able to, to preach, so uh, honored and thankful for the opportunity. Um, I, this has uh, been an interesting text for me. Um, it's been one that I've felt difficult to get my hands around, but uh, praying that God will <laughs> speak clearly through me and uh, we'll have a word that all of us can be challenged and encouraged by. Um, 
I want to start off with probably what's one of the more well-known quotations of American history. If you grew up in in the States and you went to uh, school, no doubt you've heard it. Uh, It's one that is kind of the bedrock of our American ideals. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No doubt we've all heard those words before. The, the problem with those words is that history has shown them to be untrue. Um, if we take a step back and look at the time from that statement was made to where we are now, we can see that although the words, I think they said them in earnest, uh, they didn't quite capture the reality. Uh, In this month, we celebrate Black History Month, and we're painfully reminded that we had decades and decades where this did not apply to black men. Uh, We, when this was said, we were taking those who had lived on this land, and we were shipping them off. We were slaughtering them. We were completely violating their rights, their life, their liberty, for our own. Um, As Hamilton, the great uh, educator of American history over the last uh, few years, reminds us, Thomas Jefferson wrote these words, all men are created equal, but Angelica said we need to include women in the sequel. Right? They they said these words, but they, they weren't true. And the problem is that they weren't true because the first statement, we hold these truths to be self-evident, the problem is it's not self-evident that all men are created equal. What is self-evident is that all men who are like me are created equal. And a shout out to my oldest, Evie. She's down there somewhere. Her favorite song from Pocahontas, she reminds us that you think the only people who are people are people who look and think like you. And that is actually what is self-evident to us. And we see in the passage today that this is the same problem that Peter had. Peter stands up and he says, I see now that God shows no partiality, shows no favoritism. Really? Now you see this? He has the same scriptures that we do. He has Genesis 1 that says God created all people in his image. Deuteronomy 10, 2 Chronicles 19, explicitly say that God is a God who does not show partiality and cannot be bribed. He has been with Jesus both before and after his resurrection and learned from him. And now he stands up and says, ah, now I see that God doesn't show favoritism. It's not self-evident without Christ that everyone is equal, that there is no partiality or favoritism with God. What is evident is that those who are like me, who I can identify with their experience, are equal. Now, going back to chapter 9 and the stories that uh, Chad was with, uh, you know, went through last week, we actually see in the text that Luke is setting up something interesting. When we read through these stories in Acts, it's, it's uh, easy to think that time is moving really fast. But actually, 
at this moment, it's been about 10 years since Pentecost happened, since Acts chapter 2. So it's been about 10 years that Peter is still traveling around within the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria area. And we, re- we remember from Acts chapter 2 that, that the, the commission of Christ was to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But it's been 10 years that, that Peter is traveling around in the same area. And back in chapter 9, um, it says that Peter was traveling from place to place. So he's, he's out there, he's traveling, he's going around as he was told. But after he goes through his two uh, miracles, it says, then he stopped and stayed in Joppa. Now, if we know our scriptures well, Joppa rem- should remind us of another biblical character. And that's the character of Jonah. When, when God calls Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites, he instead goes and stays in Joppa which is by the sea, where then he then catches his boat to try to run away. So Luke is actually setting up Peter as a type of Jonah. He's saying, you're traveling around, but then you're stopping right on the edge and not going where I've called you to go. And, and in today's story, that, that sort of type is strengthened because Peter gets a vision that he refuses to do, just like Jonah. God calls Jonah to do something, and Jonah says, nope, not going to do it. God, in his vision, tells Peter to do something, and Peter says, no, Lord, I'll never do that. And the call was actually to go and preach to to the Gentiles, to preach to the nations. But this time, as Jesus says back in Matthew 12, something greater than Jonah is here, a sign greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was hesitant, and he went and he preached, and Nineveh repented. But that's kind of the end of that story. Here, Peter is hesitant. He goes and he preaches. But what happens is this is the kickoff to a brand new humanity, a restored humanity of Jew and Gentile becoming one in the church. And this is actually the fundamental tension of the entire New Testament, if we really step back and think about it, is how God is going to include the Gentiles into his covenant that he has made with the Jews with Israel. This story is the turning point in all of that. It, it, we'll read through this, you know, uh, in Ch- Acts chapter 10, is, the story is kind of told twice. First, the narrator gives us the story, then Cornelius and Peter each repeat their parts of the story, and then in chapter 11, Peter recounts the entire story again. So we have, in quick succession, this story told three times in a row, which means this is important. This is a huge turning point for our understanding of what God is doing through the gospel. This story helps us understand how, how Gentiles can be included in the covenant, and it starts by breaking down this partiality that is held within, represented by Peter, but a partiality that is held by all of us. It says that, that Cornelius is someone who fears God, and what this means is that he he worshiped the God of Israel, but he was not a full keeper of the law. He would not have been circumcised. He would have not gone to the temple and participated in the practices of the temple. So he, he was a Gentile, although he believed in the God of Israel, he was a Gentile. And he says he is a centurion, which means that he was part of the Roman army. And that means he would have sworn his allegiance and an oath to Caesar as Lord. 
So in Peter's mind, he is, although he fears God, he is still an idolater. He is still a Gentile. He is still, as Peter has said, unclean. Now, the question is not, can these Gentiles be saved? Sometimes we get this, a a little bit of a misunderstanding. The Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, attest to this again and again and again. There's no problem with Gentiles being saved. The problem is, can they become part of the covenant people without keeping the law of the covenant people? And it's important to know that when a lot of times we, we, the, the Bible talks about works of the law or it brings up the law, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, it's not always talking about salvation. We tend to think of this as, you know, they were working for their salvation, but that's not what they were doing. They're talking about their identity as God's chosen people. And the problem is that they believed that to be God's people, you had to abide by, the, by these rules. That, that this had, to be the identified as God's people, you had to abide by the law. And indeed, the food laws, which is what God confronts Peter with in his vision, they were meant to set the Jews apart as a holy people. Deuteronomy 14 says this. But they were never a condemnation of all other animals, right? Which is what Peter has done, and he's applied that then to people. Peter, in his, when he gets to Cornelius, you've got to give him credit. He's certainly, um, you know, honest. Uh, but when he gets there, he says, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But the law never says that. You can't find anywhere in the Old Testament where it says you can never associate with a foreigner. Indeed, the the Old Testament law says you should welcome the foreigner. That the foreigners among you should be treated with dignity and with respect. And they have, God gives provisions for them to be taken care of. So Peter was stuck, what we often call the letter of the law. And he had missed the spirit of the law. And as Paul says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And this is how deceptive our own hearts can be. Just like Peter, we can be fully convinced that we are doing good works that are pleasing to God, and yet what we are doing is really just showing favoritism and driving a wedge between people. I want you to notice the difference between the two visions that uh, Alyssa read for us. The first one was from Cornelius, and then the second one from Peter. And in the, the vision in Cornelius, the angel comes down, and he says that his good works and his prayers have ascended, have, have risen up to God like a sacrifice. And they were bringing Jew and Gentile together, Cornelius, as a Gentile, was doing good works of charity that was bringing respect of all the Jewish people. In Peter's vision, God has to come down to confront his works. And he has to show him that his works are actually driving Jew and Gentile apart and keeping them separate. Now, each week before our... um, Sundays, Chad and Aaron and I get together to kind of discuss the sermon plan and the, and, you know, worship and everything, make sure we all have it in order. And we were talking this past Friday, and at this point, Chad was like, what's your, are you going to define 
partiality or favoritism. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. I guess I should do that. But in all honesty, I was a little hesitant to provide a definition because whenever we define something, then our nature is to find a loophole (laughs) to justify ourselves. And this is exactly what Jesus does in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The guy asks, who's my neighbor? And he doesn't give the definition of a neighbor. He tells a story because he knows if he gives the definition of the neighbor, then that guy's going to go away and try to find a loophole to only care about the people he wants to care about. So a little hesitant to provide a definition, but I do think it's helpful for us to have a definition. um, And this story, then we can kind of hopefully bear it out within the story and and avoid uh, any loopholes. But favoritism, partiality, which I'm going to use kind of interchangeably, um, the way that I think can be best defined is judging others based only upon our own experience. Or, said another way, mistaking our part, our, our life, our part, as being representative of the whole. Or ascribing our meaning as the ultimate meaning. See, this is what Peter was doing with Cornelius and, and with all the Gentiles, is that he was using his experience of the law, his meaning of the law, his part of God's work, and he was ascribing that as ultimate, that all people then have to fit into this experience, that my experience of God as one who has given me a law, everybody can only know God through that means. And that is what was partial. That is what was favoritism to Peter. And it's precisely that that God is fighting against in Peter. If we look back at the, at the kind of sermon that Peter gives, it's, it's astonishing how Jewish-centered it is. So when he began to speak, he says that, that he, meaning Jesus, sent, or meaning God, sent a message to the Israelites that it, it started throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, we ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in Judea and in Jerusalem. He, did not, he was seen, but not by all people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses. And we ate and drank with him. He is, he is saying, my experience, our experience is what, that's how God needs to be known. You cannot know him apart from that. He's still, even in his sermon as he's preaching, even though he says, I understand God shows no favoritism, he's still preaching favoritism, (laughs) that God revealed himself only to us. And, And I got to eat and drink with him. So I know, so listen to me. This is the problem. Now, as a way of illustrating this, there is a growing problem in our world over um, the use of social media and the kind of censoring of certain things on social media. And companies are really struggling with how to handle this. Back in 2015 or 16, uh, Facebook had a major problem with things being posted on their platform that would be deemed as hate speech or violent or offensive. And they had to struggle with deleting those things. 
There is a, they have a whole like slew of people, hundreds and hundreds of people. All they do is they look at Facebook posts and they have to decide, should this stay up or should it be taken down? And what was happening is that they were realizing that they had no way to really, you know, there's one person making their judgment on that image. And so they decided that they were, because Facebook was growing and there was users all over the world from all different backgrounds, that they had to get better at, dis- at deciding what is okay and what is not okay. And so they set up a Supreme Court. That's what they called it. And in order to do this, they went out to seven different countries and they got together people from all, o- all over the spectrum and they would give them examples and say, would you take this down or would you leave this up? And they would get their feedback and they would discuss and try to come to a conclusion. And it, and it, was, it was fascinating, the results from that, because one thing in America that people were like, oh, yes, that's clearly just humor, it's sarcasm. Someone in Africa would be like, no, my people have died because of this joke. So you better take that down. And see, that's the problem, is that every single person brings to the table their own experience, right? If favoritism is judging other based off of our own experience, what else do we have to judge them off of? It's our experience. And, and it, Facebook, you know, great to them. They're trying to get as much as they can, but a, a Supreme Court is not going to be able to decide that. They would actually need to bring every single person to the table to say, is this offensive to you or not? And then at that point, nothing gets posted, right? Because there's always going to be, it's always going to be offensive to somebody. And that, that's the problem that we have, is we have a, a whole diversity of experiences that we are trying to judge and describe, ascribe meaning to. Our parts, our little parts of our life, we're trying to say that the whole of life has to fit into what is mine. Now, that's the problem. That's the problem of Peter's partiality. It's the problem of our partiality. But this story is about God breaking him and breaking us of impartiality. So we need to know how. How do we do this? What's the solution if, to have if we can't judge people based off of anything but our own experiences? And although Peter in his sermon, you know, I, I kind of think that he's being a little bit, uh, he's not quite getting it. He does eventually get to the part that breaks through. At the very end, he says, He, being Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This is a direct fulfillment of Luke 24, that God, that Jesus commissioned his disciples. This was the key message that Peter was to preach to the Gentiles, that Jesus is the judge, that there is forgiveness of sins. So, if Jesus is the judge, how can we know that he is impartial? We know that because he actually becomes us. And by us, I mean all of us. Christ is the one that can hold the full diversity of humanity within himself. Now, if you watch the Super Bowl or perhaps any... uh, TV recently, you've no doubt seen these He Gets Us campaigns, these ads. And I'm not quite here to 
critique or praise those, I'm still honestly not quite sure how I feel about them. But one thing that I appreciate about the campaign is that they are trying to convey this message, this message that, that Christ in his experience, he gets us, and then it says all of us, right? That all of humanity, Christ gets us in some way. But as good as that is, it actually doesn't quite, in my mind, go deep enough. It's not just that he gets us, it's that he becomes us. Back in chapter 9, uh, two weeks ago, when Chad was preaching on the conversion of, of Paul, or Saul, we see this clearly, where Jesus says Paul is ravaging the church. He's taking men and women off to prison. And he confronts Paul, and he says, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my followers? He says, me. He doesn't just identify with them. He identifies as them. Also, in the past uh, you know, couple of chapters here, now it's weird for us because we had a break for uh, Christmas and New Year's to do uh, some sermon series, but the last sermon that uh, Aaron preached back in chapter 8 with the conversion of uh, the Ethiopian, it's interesting that we have three conversion stories in a row. We have the Ethiopian in chapter 8, we have Saul in chapter 9, and now we have Cornelius here in chapter 10. And what that represents is actually the conversion of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Back in the Old Testament, Noah and his family get off the ark, and his three sons are responsible for spreading out all humanity across the whole earth. And Ham is representative of Africa. Shem is representative of Asia and the Jewish people through Paul. And Japheth is representative of Europe, which is where Cornelius comes from, the Italian regiment. So I think Luke is kind of leading us in this direction, that that these conversions are representing that, that Jesus is encompassing the entirety of the human race. Also, in the visions, there's something that is unique in that in both visions, God does actually not provide the answer to either of them. Cornelius doesn't really know what his vision means until Peter gets there and shares his message. And Peter doesn't really know what the whole sheet coming down and coming back means until he gets there and sees what God is doing in, in and through the Gentiles. Both Jew and Gentile need each other in order to have a full understanding of the gospel, a full understanding of who Jesus is. Again, it's not just through the Jewish experience that, that we can know God. We actually need to know him through the entirety of the human experience because he is the creator of all. Now, the scriptures also speak to this, and I want to just highlight, there are so many, but I want to highlight a few. In Galatians, Paul says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, in Colossians, he says, in Christ, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, this doesn't mean that he is erasing our parts. He's not erasing our experiences. What he's doing is elevating Christ as the one who can actually hold together 
all of those experiences. Hebrews really goes to town on this. In chapter 2, it says, Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. And again, in chapter 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. These are pretty stunning statements that your experience as a woman, my experience as a man, your experience as an as a Indian, my experience as a, an American, that Jesus in some way has experienced all of that and can hold that together within himself. So it's not just that he gets us, which is great. That's very important. But he actually is de- it's deeper than that. He becomes us. But again, that doesn't even quite go far enough in and of itself. Because if he becomes us, but he actually does nothing to change us, then, then what, is it, what good is it for? He actually not only becomes us, but he heals us. Peter declares at the end of his sermon that those who believe in him receive forgiveness of sins. It's not that Jesus just understands our situation, but he actually enters into our situation that he may heal our situation. The early uh, church fathers do a great job of expressing this. One of my favorite uh, quotes from them, this is Gregory of Nazianzus, and he says, what has not been assumed has not been healed. It is what is united to his divinity that is saved. Christ becomes us as fully human, but let's not forget that he is also fully God. He is uniting that together. And if he has not assumed all of us, that has taken on all of our unique experiences, then it can't be healed. So the good news is that he has assumed all things. Again, just a couple of scriptures to note here. In Ephesians, Paul says, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. So this, was, this is coming up. This is God's plan, the mystery of his will, to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Jesus is taking all things in heaven, all things on earth, and he is the one that can actually hold them together. And in that holding together, it brings reconciliation between those two things. Again, in Colossians, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, that through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Later in Colossians, he says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ becoming us is a hope of glory because by becoming us, he heals us. One of my increasingly uh, favorite theologians, Dr. Chris Green, has said it this way. He says, nothing happens to Jesus 
except for what he wants to have happen differently for us. And that's, you know, most notably in his death. He dies so that death happens differently now for us. But the question is, this is good. But now how, how does that translate to us? How do we become impartial? We see that Jesus, by becoming us and healing us, how he can be impartial. But how do we then become impartial? How do we get rid of our favoritism? It's in that Christ became us, he heals us, so that now we can become him through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This text ends that while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. I like to think of this as God just like couldn't hold back. Peter, like Peter, come on you knucklehead, let's get to the point. And as soon as he makes the point, the Holy Spirit falls. He's not even waiting for Peter to lay hands on these folks. He's like, right now, ready to drop. He pours out his Holy Spirit on us. He shares his life with us. Now, this is crazy. Stick with me. Peter gets this, and later in his life, he writes in 2 Peter, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Catch this. By these, he has given us a very great and precious, precious promise so that through them you may share in the divine nature escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. Through this, we are sharing in the divine nature. Don't don't let that, that's crazy, but don't let that pass over you too easily. Paul says similar things in Ephesians 3. He says that he's praying that we would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Christ becomes us. He heals us so that we would become him. That we now, through the sharing of his life with us, we can do the same that he has done. Again, an early church father, St. Athanasius, he writes, the Son of God became man that we might become God. God shows no partiality because he fully shares his life and becomes us. And in order for us to lose our partiality, we must become others. We must share, now share our life with them. When we show partiality, what happens then is we are actually dividing Christ. We are opposing the mystery of the gospel. Chad mentioned this last week in Galatians where Paul confronts Peter to his face because he was eating with the Gentiles And then as soon as some Jewish people show up, he stopped and he went back to eat with the Jewish people. And at the end of that, he says, he confronted him to his face because he said, you were deviating or you were out of step with the gospel. By showing favoritism like this, we are out of step with the gospel. This is not just some, you know, metaphysical reality this is, the, this is the core and the truth of the gospel, that Christ has, has brought all things together in him. And when we show favoritism, we are dividing Christ. Now, I was, as I said earlier, I was really struggling with kind of how to get my hands around this passage this week. And, 
and how to kind of sum it up and, and encourage us. Um, but we, this week, we, our, our family, were learning a new verse with our children. We uh, have a verse that we uh, try to remember to recite every evening at dinner uh, when they're not screaming and yelling and throwing food. Um, and this, this uh, time, the verse that we chose was 1 John 3.16, which says, This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And this kind of is where it really hit me, that when we show partiality or when we show favoritism, it, it incapacitates our ability to love. The reason that God is not partial is because he is love. And he created us to love one another. And when we are being partial, we, we cannot show love. A theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, has this great illustration that he uses, and he talks about the breath of God. And he says, God breathes us in and then breathes us back out. He takes us into himself and gives us his life, and then he breathes us back out into the world that we may take his life to others. And some people even talk about having two conversions. A conversion from the world to God, and then a conversion from God back to the world. And I think those are represented in our story here today, right? Cornelius, the whole point of this story is that Cornelius needed to meet and to understand who Jesus was. It was a conversion from the world unto God. But also Peter needed a conversion of his own. He had met Jesus. He had lived with Jesus, but he had not yet converted from that back out to the world. He was still only operating within his part, within his meaning. And these conversions are not ones that are just one-time things. These have to happen in our lives again and again and again. God breathes us in each day and breathes us back out. And perhaps nowhere does this happen more powerfully for me than in, in the Lord's table that we're going to partake of in a few moments. Each week that we take this is a reminder that God has brought us in to his body and it's broken and given to us that it may nourish us and sustain us to be his body in the world. The comfort of the table is that God does not play favorites. There's no first-class seats in the kingdom of God. It's amazing when we think about all over the world the different types of people who are going to come and partake of this meal every Sunday morning. There are people from United States, from South America, from Asia, from Africa, all over the world, all different experiences, all unique, are coming to share in this one meal, which is Christ's body <laughs> broken for us. They all come to the table because their sins are forgiven, and they share in God's own life. And that is the message that we hold out. That God has become us. He has healed us. That there is forgiveness of sins. And all we have to do is believe. It's simple. We have to believe. We have to stop taking 
our own experiences and our own part and our own meaning and applying it to the whole, and we have to look to Christ, who is the whole of all creation, who is the ultimate meaning of all reality. What we will do in a moment is the most real thing you will do all week. It's amazing. I want to close with just a short prayer written down in the Book of Common Prayer um, used by many churches around the world that I think embraces this so beautifully. So let's pray this. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So fill us with your spirit that we, reaching forth with hands of love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name, amen.